You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, cultures, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. Okay, so we are now recording. Great. All right, so I'm going to introduce you, and then I'm going to talk to you about this wonderful book that I have really enjoyed reading. All right, so here we go. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this is Harper Audio Presents. Joining me today via cell phone from Nashville, Tennessee, is Jason Miller, one half of the Miller Brothers writing team, creators of the critically acclaimed graphic novel Red Ball Six, and author of the novel Down Don't Bother Me, publishing by Bourbon Street Books on March 24th. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So at the time that this podcast airs, the book will have just published, and many listeners might not have had a chance to read it. So I wanted to set it up with a quote or two. There were many quotes from um, independent bookstore owners, but I, 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 there were so many I, it was hard to pick. But I'm going to read two, and then I'm going to ask you to sort of set up the plot. There was a, there was a bookstore owner in Kentucky that called it hard-boiled detective meets southern grit, also hilarious which is quite true. And then wait, I want to do one more. Jason Miller suddenly appears in the world of mysteries, a neatly wrapped package tucked under his arm and presents us with the real thing, a well-written, seamlessly plotted mystery with a likable everyday hero in a well-drawn world nearby, but foreign to most of us, little Egypt, the coal fields of Southern Illinois. So, that's exactly how I felt. I felt like I knew this part of the country, but I didn't know it at all. So please, please set up both the, the landscape and then a little bit of the plot. It's, it's obviously it's a mystery story, so we we can't give too much away, but but set it up for us. Uh, Well, uh, Southern Illinois is sort of the, the bottom, um, the bottom third of the state. Um, And I do think that when people, think about Illinois, they do tend to think about the um, sort of vast uh, tillage, cornfields, farmland in the middle of the state, the plains. Uh, They think about Chicago. But southern Illinois is quite different um, from the rest of the state. It's uh, regionally uh, environmentally different. It's culturally different. Um, It's got a lot more in common with northern Kentucky and uh, states even further south, Tennessee, for example, very conservative compared to the rest of Illinois, which is a really blue state. Uh, Southern Illinois is a very deep red area and very culturally conservative, I think, uh, in a lot of ways. And it it is home um, to a a coal mining industry and was once quite a thriving coal mining area. Uh, really until the 1990s when you start to see um, coal production move out west in search of so-called cleaner coal. Mm-hmm. It was cheaper to close down southern Illinois coal mines than to spend the money to repurpose them, to make them cleaner, to bring them up to Clean Air Act code. So you have the, the skeleton of this industry there, 
coal mining memorials instead of coal mines and a lot of the uh, old miners running around still in the area. There are still coal mine jobs there. My book is set against the backdrop of the mining industry. I grew up in a mining town. Um, my father was a coal miner for a very okay. long time. You know, it's from that that this story comes from. Down Don't Bother Me is about um, a coal miner who we only know is slim. Um, and one thing about Southern Illinois coal miners, and, and I have some coal miners elsewhere, they, they go by these nicknames. And, yes, every uh, single character has a nickname. And in most cases, you give us the background to get to that nickname, and they're, they're, they're hilarious, many of them. You know, and a lot of those are drawn from people I from people I knew, people I grew up with. Most of my friends, fathers, and, and even some of their mothers were coal miners. My uncles were coal miners. Um, and, you know, you run into these people all the time, and then when they see each other in public, they refer to one another by their nicknames. You know, who's that? Oh, that's Caddy Wampus. Who's that? Oh, that's Strawberry. Who's that? Oh, that's Rabbit. And, you know, it's not uncommon for many of them to have these names um, chiseled onto their tombstones. When they Is passed. that right? So, wow. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's very much part of their identity and part of their uh, uh, sort of cultural heritage. And so, so we know our my main character as, as Slim, and Slim is asked by the, the coal operator who he works for uh, to search for a missing photographer who also happens to be the coal operator's son-in-law. And to inveigle Slim into doing this, he promises Slim uh, the security of his pension, which is such yeah. a modest, it's such a modest offer. You know, you, you would think it would take more than that, and he's so happy to donate his services for that pension that will protect his young daughter. Yeah, and I saw this when I was a young man, and uh, still sort of in the area. Uh, there was a point where a federal judge in um, Kentucky had allowed some of the coal companies in, in Kentucky and southern Illinois to essentially reincorporate same actors, different company charter, different company name. And that effectively uh, wiped out those yeah. workers' pensions. Um, and it took an act of Congress to restore them. But it really impressed on me at the time how betrayed people felt that these pensions, that many of them remain in the coal mines to secure right. um, longer than they might otherwise, how important that is to them. And they do see it as future security, they see it as health care in the future, they see it as, you know, modest income into their uh, dotage. So um, I decided to make that Flynn's motivation and tie me sort of closer to this industry in this area. Yeah. Um, and it does become sort of a uh, fight over what seemed like scraps, but it turned out to be really important. Right, so he's reluctantly pulled into this role of private detective, which he clearly has innate sense of because in a very early scene, he's talking to uh, the coal mine owner's daughter, and she's saying certain things, and he's saying, "Yeah, I'm not sure I believe you." And she says, "Why?" And he tells her what you know what she's done with her face, and so he he clearly has that instinct with him, but he's reluctant every step of the way because he keeps getting pulled in further and further and the stakes keep getting higher and higher. And I just love this character, this re this reluctant private detective. We've seen a lot of private detectives. We've seen a lot of fish out of water. But I felt for him so much because he spends so much time in the book trying to resign, <laughs> trying to get out of it. <laughs> trying to get out, right, right. Uh, thank you. Uh, much like uh, work in the coal mines, it's 
itself, I think. And, you know, this natural right. antagonism and mistrust between um, coal operators, coal bosses, and their coal miners. And it yeah. comes back a long way, but they're never people who entirely trust each other. And they have a relationship that's based on leveraging mistrust against each other to, you know, renegotiate contracts, to get mm. something out of the other party, to extract a little more from the party, to lessen safety standards in coal mines a little more and like that. So uh, much of Flynn's relationship with uh, Matthew Luster in the book, the coal operator in the book, stems from this mistrust, which is basically yeah. in, in the blood of both men and um, really forms a tremendous amount of the, the history of this this region. I grew up in a county nicknamed Bloody Williamson after a notorious act of labor violence in really? the 1920s. It's an area that was not at all unfamiliar with acts of labor violence, gangsterism, pitched battles between coal operators and, and the union, which at the time was extremely strong in southern Illinois and remained so, again, really until the 90s, although in sort of a weakened form. I'll never forget back in, I believe, the early early 90s, a long strike that my father was involved in and became very involved in union politics at that time, traveling the state, collecting contributions, food mm -hmm. and cash to help people um, get through the, the strike, which I believe this one lasted about eight or nine months. Wow. Um, and Dad coming home one day and, and wearing a T-shirt that had the silhouette of a rifleman on it that said Scab Hunter. Wow. On it, and um, yeah, you know, and 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 the um, and and the feelings that that created in the family, I think. Right. So you know, intense passion. Um, one thing that the UMWA would do during long strikes, it was kind of want to leave more negotiations on the table, more stuff you can do on the table, more tactics. So they would call some coal mines out on strike. They would leave other coal mines at work, and so. If you had a big enough family and you had enough coal miners in your family, very likely you would have some oh. family members, some relatives out of work for months on end. You would have some relatives who were still in work. You can imagine it creates some tension. It creates some feelings of jealousy um, mm -hmm. and some hard feelings that can, that can last a lot. Yeah, and, and you use this all as sort of a humming background to the story, but I, I don't want listeners to think that this is 100% a dark story because as the bookstore owner said, it, it is hilarious. The, the way Slim speaks and the sort of, he, he has this resignation around, ugh, you know, but what's the phrase that you use? Life is tough for some of us. I can't, I can't remember the exact kind of phrase. You know, do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, yeah, there's the, uh, it's, a, it's a hard old world for some folks. That's uh, right. And he's, he's but saying, he sort yeah. of uses that and he sort of says, oh, all right, you know, so I can't get too, I can't get too excited about anything. And he, he sort of goes around and he, he's very direct in his business and his intent and, and he keeps this hilarious sense of humor throughout the book. There's an idiom in the, in the area and there's a way of expression in the area that when I started uh, working on a, a book, and I decided I wanted to set it back back home. I started listening, really listening to the way that my relatives express themselves, and and they have this hilarious and sort of unexpected and novel way of talking. They and do. there is a there is a bit of resignation there. There is a bit of sort of straightforwardness there. 
Um, they do have, as I said, some of the cultural proclivities of Southerners, but they've also got that kind of Midwestern suit of armor around them um, that comes across sometimes, I think, as very blunt. Um, yeah, it's a great combination, and it is unlike any other that I've really read or heard. I wonder, um, when you did decide to to write a novel, to move away from your graphic novels, which I'll ask you about in a bit, what made you drawn to a detective story as opposed to a different type of story? I've loved mysteries since I was a kid. I think about mysteries as being structurally, um, you know, so interesting and, and so um, emblematic of the structure of what a novel does and what a novel accomplishes. And so you have this sort of disruption of order at the beginning of the novel, and then you have action to try to restore that order or create a new order, and then you have a day no law, you know, where everything gets settled in one way or another. You know, I grew up reading Agatha Christie stories, mm-hmm. for example. Um, and then later in, uh, you know, later in life discovered this, this amazing um, vein of, of regional mystery writers, you know, that oh. are all over the country and, and you know, writing books from – and, uh, and you know, it made me realize, like, well, you really can, you really can do this. You can write a book with a really strong sense of place, and you can make the book, you can tie the mystery to the mystery of that place. Right. Instead of just layering a mystery story, a mystery structure, you know, the trappings of a detective novel over a place. Um, you can really tie them together, and you can make them talk to each other. As you do. That's exactly what you do. That You get that feeling when... There, there are not a lot of descriptive passages, but there are times when Slim gets on his motorcycle and you, you describe the surroundings, and it really is that it is a dialogue. It's, it's really very cool. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I love the. Um, um, I, I, I find it to be a, a, a beautiful place. Um, uh-huh. It's sort of, it's sort of beautiful in its ugliness. I think. Um, yeah. You know, but the You should put some pictures on your website. Should, you know, we, we, we went through a thing where we were, you know, we, uh, we were designing the cover, thinking about the cover of, of the, um, of the book. And, um, they kept sending through, um, designs that had some of the state parks. Yeah. And then, and they, you know, they have these sandstone monuments and these rocky outcroppings. And I kept showing them to people to get their opinions. And they say, well, that doesn't look like Southern Illinois. That looks like, you know, that looks like somewhere out west. Oh. Um, and I say, no, but it is Southern Illinois. <laughs> That's very interesting. It, it, really, it really is. But they just refuse to accept that this was what this place looked like. To them, it looked like a Roadrunner cartoon. Right. Um, and so, you know, we, had, we kind of struggled to find an image that wouldn't confuse people with an idea of the area that they have in their mind. So one thing I did want to do in the book is to, you know, describe Flynn's environment and give people an idea of what Southern Illinois looks like. And I think it's more generally what, you know, very rural places are like. Um, you know, I think we've gotten to a point where we think of like a small town as a town with, you know, 60, 70, 80,000 people in it. I went right. to high school in a town with 2,000 people. Right. Um, you know, and uh, my parents, you know, live in a water district to right. this day. It's sort of a hamlet. You know, they vote at the water tower um, <laughs> in elections. Oh, man. So, you know, these are very small places with people spread out, you know, and sort of want to get across that sense of distance that Slim's dealing with. People keep saying, you know, can you get here in a hurry? And he keeps telling them, no, I really can't. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. 
and he's got to get on his bike, and whether it's raining or it's cold, he still has to get on his, on his bike and get over there. Yeah, it's about you half an hour or more wherever you go. Exactly. Yeah. He, he's always estimating, oh, it'll take me 20 minutes, it'll take me 40 right. minutes, because he's always got to get back to his daughter also. So, you know, if he goes in one direction, and he's got to double back, uh, you know, to attend to her. So that's, that's always sort of pressing on him. But the other thing that I thought, you know, what do I know? I'm a a city girl. Why would I know anything about, you know, working in a mine? But you, you not only, you captured what it's like to work in a mine, but you, you told me what it was like to work in different types of mines. Because there was Mm. the one character who works, gosh, as a security guard. And what is his nickname? He's the one who used the lotion and it's got, what was it? Is it, was it Violet? Lilac. Lilac, Lilac, right? So he yeah, had to, yeah. and the reason why he was using the lotion is he worked in a mine that was so low that he would get scabs on his back mm-hmm. from basically bending over so much and then scraping up against the the ceiling of the mine over and over and over again. That that's, that, right. that's astonishing to someone like me who would have no sense of that. I mean, you hear the stories about the massy, you know, all the troubles with massy mines. And I listen, you know, on NPR while I'm in my little kitchen, you know, what do I know? And you read just so you just drop just that little detail and you feel, oh, my goodness, you understand, you understand this character so well. Obviously, it's a certain type of, of body that could be in that environment. And I don't believe most low coal miners probably work in low coal kind of circumstances for very long. But again, I, I have to say that this is, this is all so interesting to me, and I'm sure to others, but it is really used as an element of this great, fast-paced, humorous story and featuring Slim and, and his daughter. And I, are we um, able to expect more from Slim? Are you writing the next one? The next one is uh, very nearly done. It's in the polishing stage. Wow. Uh, yeah, so I've, uh, I've handed over... Um, a really good chunk of the book to my agent at this point. So yes, there's more, more stories to tell about Slim and about that area, and you know, and um, you know, more of these characters to get to know. Um, I'm you so know, you happy. sort of. Yeah, you, thank you. Well, you see, you know, sort of spend the first book putting this big, um, noisy, boisterous family in place, and and then you kind of want to see what happens to them. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm eager to see what happens to them as well. So you know, we keep writing them. <laughs> Great. Now, I always uh, spend a couple minutes with authors speaking to them as readers. So I, I ask them about influential works, which you've already referenced, some of these um, sort of location-rich mysteries that you've read. But I wonder if you had to recommend a book to a 13-year-old boy, what would you recommend? Hmm. Um, I love uh, Ursula Tate. Uh, Le Guin's um, Percy trilogy. Yep. When I was a kid. And how did you and find them? We just always had books around when I was a kid. They, it was important. Um, I, I think. I think in some ways we just had fewer distractions. Mm-hmm. Then you know, um, you know, we we didn't have a we didn't have a VCR in the house until I was in high school. I think. Yeah. Um, we we didn't have a cable in the house until after I I moved out and you know gone to college. So um, there were books everywhere, and so we had, you know, Ursula Gwynn and Madeline Lingle and, and, and you name it, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I think that those books, I, I really loved them as a kid, and I recommend them to any young person. Um, 
And I, you know, I think there's sort of a connection with a Harry Potter thing because they have sort of story similarities, although, you know, there are still uh, first books came quite a bit earlier. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know whether those get read by young people anymore. I don't know whether those are still I think they do. Popular. I think they do. Yeah. 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 All right. So final question. Were you to know that you were going to be banished to a desert island and you were allowed to take three books, which three books would you take? Which three books would I take? Maybe it's silly, but one book that I come back to um, and read every few years is uh, The Name of the Rose. Oh. Um, Umberto Echo's Name of the Rose. I don't yeah. know why. I just love it. And I always find, like, new stuff in it. Um, I, and I think, I, just, I, think it's, I think it's lovely. And it's lovely, uh, you know, use of the mystery form to talk about other stuff. Um, yeah. uh, I also love um, uh, Seven Story Mountains, uh, Thomas Burton's Seven Story Mountains. Okay. Um, which is uh, uh, you know, Thomas Merton, the the, uh, the Trappist monk, and you know his story of his conversion. Um, oh. And I find it a you know a beautiful book and a beautiful self-examination, but also just a really you know lovely um, piece of writing. And um, hmm, probably uh, James Crumley's Dancing Bear. <laughs> Um, which is one of my favorite crime novels, one of my favorite mystery novels. And if people know it when they read my book, I think they'll, they'll see um, some similarities there, um, spiritual similarities uh, between the two works. Uh, I think it's out of print now. I think that you actually have to, like, buy a, you know, used copy. Or, oh, uh, that's a used copy. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Crumbly doesn't have um, many published works. I and see. It's sort of amazing. it's sort of amazing that, that some of them have managed to go out of print. Yeah, um, but uh, he he was a, a huge influence on on me and uh, you know a regional writer who whose uh, mystery stories are set in uh, Montana and then later in Texas, okay. um, and kind of uh, was an influence on me and, and helped convince me that this you know this type of book you know could could work um, yeah. could be interesting um, you know I'm could so set glad a story he did. like this. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so glad he did because I so much enjoyed Down, Don't Bother Me. And congratulations on a wonderful book. And uh, thank you so very much for spending this time with us. Thank you. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi. And this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.